Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Turkey, where there's been dramatic election results, setting back the political ambitions and increasingly personalised rule of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Joining me on the line from Istanbul is our correspondent there, Dan Dombey. And also on the line is David Gardner, who follows Turkish affairs for the FT. Dan, first, just give us a sense of what happened in the elections. It was an unexpected setback, I think, for Mr Erdogan and his AKP party. What happened was an earthquake, to be honest. The AKP is a party that has grown in popular support during its 13 years in office. And Mr Erdogan is someone who has triumphed in nine consecutive elections. They were the biggest single party after Sunday's results, but they lost their majority. He was storming the country, campaigning in violation of the Constitution, calling for 400 MPs in the 550-seat Parliament, and they got fewer than 260. This was not part of the Erdogan plot, and it was all the more dramatic because it was an election all about Erdogan. He had sought a supermajority so that he could give himself even greater presidential powers, so that he could overrule the courts, essentially, so that he could take much of a role of Parliament. Instead of getting that supermajority, he got no majority at all. And that, despite the fact that they're still the biggest party, means that this was really the first real defeat he has ever suffered at the hands of the Turkish people. And David, Dan touched on this. Many people had feared, really, for the integrity of Turkish democracy as Mr Erdogan and his party had accrued more power to themselves, talk of giving him a much more powerful role as president, which now seems to be stymied. I know you think that this has been, regardless of the merits of the individual parties, quite a strong demonstration of the strength of Turkish democracy. Oh, I think it has, indeed. I mean, it's first and foremost a magnificent display of the extraordinary diversity of Turkey, which we saw in the Gezi Park, Taksim Square protest, which went nationwide two years ago against Erdogan's suffocatingly intrusive and autocratic and willful rule. So that aspect of it is, I think, to be celebrated. But at a more institutional level, I think it has not only halted or brought the bulldozer of the AK party to a juddering halt, a rather apt comparison, given the party's very intimate connections to building contractors. It stuppered Erdogan's plans to institutionalize one-man rule through an executive presidency. But given the way that he has trampled on so many of Turkey's institutions, perhaps most damagingly, the judiciary and the rule of law, as well as the fourth estate, his intimidation and persecution of the media, what this vote has the capacity, perhaps, to do is to re-energize Parliament as an institution. 
just as it was in danger of becoming a rubber stamp, and thereby perhaps to rebuild some of the checks and balances that Erdogan has swept away. Now, a word of caution here. I mean, the already considerable existing powers Erdogan has as president, and which he has willfully exceeded and abused, we could see a good bit more of that, or it could cause him to reflect. That is what he urged political actors to do in his only statement since the election, which, you know, for him is an unwanted silence, given the way he regularly hectors Turks on everything from the need to drink yogurt or to have more babies. So, Dan, that is an interesting point, and one I'd like to come to in a second, how is Erdogan going to play this? But another wrinkle of the election was the rise of a Kurdish party, which also seemed to embrace rather unexpectedly urban liberals. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. This is what swung the election. The AKP lost about a fifth of its voters. But what lost them their majority was indeed the rise of this People's Democratic Party. And what lost the AKP the election And what got the Kurds into Parliament in such numbers was precisely a measure put in place by the generals 30 years ago to stop the Kurds from getting into Parliament. Turkey has the highest threshold to enter Parliament in the world, 10%. And many people say that it's extremely unfair that you can't get a party into Parliament unless you surpass that level. This was precisely put in place by the 1982 constitution in the military regime to stop the country's Kurds from entering Parliament. But the brilliance of the Kurdish party's manoeuvre is that they use this as a means, as a campaigning tool, going up and down Turkey, telling people, you need to vote for us, because we can only enter parliament if we're above 10%, and only if we're in parliament can we stop Erdogan from pursuing his presidential ambitions. And that's why they sweat the secularist neighbourhoods, many of whose inhabitants have never gone within 100 kilometres of the Kurdish southeastern heartlands of Turkey. It was a gamble, but it was a gamble that paid off extremely well. But what really, really added to their numbers numerically wasn't just these liberals that you could talk to in Istanbul or Ankara or Izmir. The other thing that really helped the party was the religious Kurds, who have really supported Erdogan and the AKP very strongly about a half of the Kurdish population for the last 13 years for the basic reason that his government has done more for Kurdish rights than all of the other governments in the Turkish Republic put together. But something, I think, snapped. First of all, people felt that Erdogan was not pursuing the Kurdish peace process as an end in itself, but only as a bargaining chip to get more presidential powers. But secondly, they were aghast at what they saw as his passivity towards the attack launched by ISIS in Syria against their Syrian Kurdish brethren. And that's why those Kurdish conservative religious people switched to the People's Democratic Party and one of the reasons why the AKP lost its majority. But just briefly on this point, Dan, I mean, it strikes one as in some ways quite an unnatural alliance as well between secular liberals in cities like Istanbul and religious Kurds. Is it likely to fall apart? At the moment, obviously, there's a motivating force for the opposition, which is anti-Erdogan. The Kurds are very aware that they have been lent votes by secularists who voted for them because of the electoral oddities of the Turkish system. But what that means is that they're going to be on their very best behavior. And being on their very best behavior is probably the best way to morph what has been an armed conflict into the world of political debate. 
So the Kurdish party is unlikely to do a deal with the AKP precisely because it knows that that will alienate the people who just voted for it. They may have been lent these votes, but they would rather like to keep them long term. And David, you mentioned this very strong impression that Erdogan was kind of on the rampage and was close to threatening the integrity of Turkey's democracy with all the attacks on the media and so on. Do you think, from what you know as a long-time observer of Erdogan, that he will take this lying down or will this be a temporary pause and he'll go back to the project that he was pursuing before? I think I agree with everything Dan said about the People's Democratic Party, the HDP phenomenon, but I think there's a little bit more to it than that in the following sense that the remarkable revelation of this election was that its leader, this young, articulate, personable lawyer, human rights lawyer, Salahuddin Dedimitas, who I think shows a number of things, but not least an appetite for young new leaders in touch with the concerns of a young population. That is new. Turks haven't really had that on offer for some time. And it has served as a catalyst to an extent in showing that there are alternatives to Turkey's zero-sum political culture. And a bit of it is starting to rub off on more traditional parties, such as the party of Ataturk, Republican People's Party, the Kemalists, which was in danger of disappearing into a sort of shrinking Kemalist cult. But, you know, it has a very stolid and decent sort of leader, but it just was stuck in the past. Now, partly under the impetus of the HDP and Dimitrov, it's also starting to change by, for example, using primary elections to select candidates. This is pretty revolutionary stuff. I mean, some of it may even rub off on the ruling party, the ACT Party, which is beginning, only beginning, I wouldn't want to exaggerate it, to sound a little bit mutinous after this result. But going back to your question about Erdogan, whether he would take it lying down, very hard to say, to be honest. It is certainly not in his character, nor is it part of his arsenal of tactics, the primary one of which usually is to polarize. There have been a lot of speculation about the position of Abdullah Gul, the former president and co-founder of the AKP, who's been marginalized by the party, but it still has quite a following within it and among people who left it. So might he stand as the next leader of the ACT Party? Might he find a new party? That's what the speculation is, but there's evidence of a certain amount of anxiety about this. For example, that there are reports, credible reports, that his brother, who's an industrialist, has been subject to one of the classic intimidation tactics used by this government, the tax auditor, doubling as government enforcer. It's a classic form of intimidation. Straws in the wind, no doubt. He may take the opportunity to stand back and say, well, looks like Turks don't want an executive presidency. I still have considerable powers. What next? Okay. Dan, in Istanbul, political liberals seem to have been pretty delighted by the results, but the markets don't seem so pleased. Why the reaction there? 
Well, I mean, one of the problems is that the uh, Turkish AKP government has been going around for the last 10, 13 years saying that Turkey's economic success during its tenure has been due to the fact that it has a strong single-party government and the return to the coalitions of the 1990s, which were crisis-ridden years, would be a disaster. And if you suddenly then get a coalition government, the market is going to take that rather badly. And indeed, this is a constellation of forces that points to no obvious government. It requires Mr. Erdogan to reconcile himself to Parliament. He's a person who gives the Prime Minister nominee his mandate, and also the person who decides that there's no good and you just have to call fresh elections. The AKP has to reconcile itself to coalition, and the opposition parties have to work out who, if anyone, they're going to work with. There is no obvious government out coming out of this. And more fundamentally, there are some real structural problems with Turkish economy. It's very based on domestic demand founded on borrowed money. It needs structural reforms. This kind of setup doesn't make it look likely that we're going to have a strong government doing those reforms in the immediate future, at the very least. And finally, uh, David, a couple of years ago, I think Erdogan had a strong claim to being really a dominant figure in the region, one with aspirations to regional leadership. Now Turkey seems to be in such a confused state and also perhaps one of the few really functioning democracies in the region. What are the regional implications of what's happening in Turkey? Are there any? Well, it is still the case that in the Arab world, certainly Turkey is admired, not so much for Erdogan, but principally for its relative success as a middle-income economy, which has quite rapidly built up a middle class, has claimed certain institutions, a democracy, not always vibrant, but, you know, it clearly can function, as we've just seen. But there's that, and there's the fact that the Erdogan, the foreign policy, is in tatters. And that claim to leadership, which was plausible, but cat-handedly exercised, as it were, is gone, I think. Turkey will still excite admiration, but I don't think Erdogan leadership does in the same way. Having said all that, I think there are two things to keep your eye on. One is the resurgence of interest in Europe and the European Union among Turks. Perfectly understandable given the meltdown of the Middle East to their south and east. And secondly, that one of Erdogan's great bugbears, namely Syria and the Assad regime, is coming under unprecedented pressure, partly because there has been a partial regrouping of the Sunni camp, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, which is beginning to show on the ground, particularly among mainstream rebels, although they have lost so much ground to the Islamists that that scenario still looks very bleak. Okay. David Gardner, thank you very much indeed, and thanks also to Dan Dombey in Istanbul. That's all we have time for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.